Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7 this evening. Luke 7, the title of the message is Fear, Discouragement, and Doubt. Sarah, could I bother you to check and make sure that we're on my paranoia? Yes. We are in the same passage that we found ourselves in last week. It's not really a part two, but it's the second message on this same concept, fear, discouragement, and doubt. Last week in our time together, we exposited this passage, exploring the message of Jesus Christ in response to John's doubt and concerns. And then we contemplated our position to Jesus Christ. As compared to the position of the greatest of the prophets, John the Baptist. And finally, we warned that to resist Christ in any context, to resist the message of truth, is to resist our own blessedness. For indeed, what Christ offers us through faith is the very fullness of joy. And before we move on, before we move past that point in the text, I would like for us to dwell upon a concept which we find in the text just by implication, if I may put it this way, but which has, since the New Testament church began, fascinated the minds and the hearts of God's people. We spoke of it last week as well, the fact that John the Baptist, indeed the very herald of the Word of God made flesh, doubted the identity of Christ. Last week, We explored this from an objective perspective, that Jesus was saying and doing things which stretched the mind of the Jews, and what John heard from his disciples was likely filled with their own doubts and fears more than necessarily John's doubts and fears. But this does not necessarily minimize the fact that John sent men to confirm Jesus' identity, to ask him whether he was indeed the one that they were looking for, nor does it minimize the message which Jesus sent back to John, blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended, that we're meaning to trip up or to, um, to cause to stumble. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Jesus would go on to defend his friend, calling him the greatest of prophets born of women. And what I would like to do this evening is explore John the Baptist. We do not get much of his story from the Gospel of Luke. The next time John the Baptist comes up in the text, aside from Luke 7.33, right here, um, right in the same context, it's Luke 9, where Herod the Tetrarch says, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. So sometime between Jesus' words in in Luke 7 to John, where he says, blessed is he whosoever is not offended in me, and Herod's words in Luke 9 saying, I beheaded John. John is beheaded, right? And first, I'd like to explore that. I'd like to explore why that happens, because the other Gospels give us more insight into it. And then we're going to discuss some basic aspects of human emotion and what the Bible teaches us about them. Now, in order to understand the whole account of John the Baptist, we go to the Gospel of Mark. In Mark, as in all of the Gospels, we are introduced to John's imprisonment early in the narrative, and basically just in passing. It's just kind of stated that he was thrown in prison. But how this helps us is to know that John was cast in prison, likely during the 40 days that Jesus was being tempted 
in the wilderness, the 40 days where he fasted and then at the end of which he was tempted by Satan. And it is likely during that 40 day span that John is cast into prison for when Jesus returned, having heard John was cast into prison, the Bible says he immediately went to Galilee and began to preach there, beginning, of course, with the miracle of Cana in Galilee. And so we read in Mark chapter one, verse 14. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. We do not hear much of John again in the gospel of Mark until the day that we read the account of Herod's decision to behead him. Now, before we dig into that history, it is worthy of our mentioning that we have, and I mentioned this last week as well, we have already known from our study in the book of Luke that John was going to be beheaded. Way back in Luke chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, the Bible says, But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved of him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. So we get just the slightest bit of context in Luke chapter 3 that uh, John had spoken against Herod because he took Herodias, his brother's wife, And then he spoke up against all the evils which Herod did. And for this, Herod, adding to those evils, threw the great prophet into prison. But that's all we learn. We'll learn the rest from the Gospel of Mark. Now, we could, by the way, also find this account, though less thoroughly told, in Matthew 14. So if you're writing cross-references in your Bible, you can put Matthew 14, you can uh, put Mark 6, and you can put... um, Well, you can't put anything for Luke, because Luke doesn't tell us about it, right? But we go to Mark for this, and in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, we read this. And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias, and others said it is that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. Herod hears of Jesus and the the same thing that we considered back in Luke, right? He hears of Jesus and he's wondering about him. But due to the rumors of his mighty works, Herod is concerned that this man might actually be John the Baptist risen from the dead. After all, the rumors are that he's raising others from the dead. So it would not be far-fetched if these rumors were true that he himself had risen from the dead. Indeed, we can find Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, very true, again and again in this world. And Herod expresses it here. Proverbs 28, 1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Indeed, Herod is a man who is in conscience being tormented by the reality that he beheaded John, and his conscience, his his thoughts are betraying him. His conscience is, is running away with itself because of his sin. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. And boy, we've seen that before in, in hundreds of contexts, haven't we? Herod knew what he had done. He knew it was wrong. And so metaphorically speaking, he was haunted in his conscience, knowing that he had beheaded the prophet of God. Well, the text continues to give the backstory of that beheading. And that's kind of where we're going. We know he's going to be beheaded. The backstory of that beheading is this. The Bible says in verses 17 and 18 of Mark 6, For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John, and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother's wife, for he had married her. For John said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. A little bit of history here for the sake of context. Herod the Great was a ruthless ruler over the Jews. And he was king 
of that region of the Roman Empire underneath Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth. He was an Edomite, an Idumean, whose ancestors had been treated quite savagely by the Jewish people and so rather disliked them. He found his way to the top during the reign of Octavian, a man who would eventually become Augustus Caesar, the emperor of Rome. Herod the Great was a man who began the ambitious project of restoring the temple in Jerusalem for his own glory, the temple which we call the Temple of Herod. He was ruthless, however, towards the Jews themselves. This is evidenced in the fact that in order to destroy Jesus, he felt absolutely no qualms about destroying every man-child, two years old and younger, throughout the entire coast of, of Judea, just to find this one who was threatening his rule. Traditionally, Herod is accepted to have died in 4 B.C., now, we know that uh, Jesus and Joseph and Mary came back out of Egypt following Herod's death. And if Herod died in 4 BC, well, that would be kind of interesting because we typically assume that Jesus was born right around that zero mark, right? Or the 1 BC or, or the 1 AD. Um, but there is much evidence that could suggest that Herod actually died in 1 BC. This would still not necessarily mean Jesus was born right there in that middle mark. Most likely, Jesus was born sometime between 6 BC and 2 BC. Most likely. Herod had at least 10 wives. And with these 10 wives, he had multiple sons and daughters. Now, among these were Archelaus. Archelaus is mentioned in Matthew 2.2 as the son of Herod who reigned in Judea in his father's stead. This is why um, Joseph and Mary went to Nazareth when they returned from Egypt, because Archelaus was ruling in the place of his father. Uh, Philip the Tetrarch, mentioned in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, as a Tetrarch in Ituria. Herod the second Philip, also a Tetrarch, and this was Herodias' first husband, as mentioned in our text. It might also be of note that Herodias was the daughter of Aristobulus, who had been killed by Herod the Great in 7 BC, though it was one of Herod's sons. So Herodias and Herod Philip and Herod Antipas, uh, who is the one who will marry Herodias from Philip, are actually all related, which was not uncommon in the day, Right? Now, these sorts of incestuous relationships were, were not uncommon, but it was against the Mosaic Law. So this is against the Mosaic Law. And then, of course, the, the real problem, as, as Mark presents it, is that Herod has taken his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, to be his wife. Uh, and, and that leads us to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas uh, was Tetrarch, married to a woman named Erita. She was the daughter of an Arabian king, uh, the king of the Nabetians, which if you remember from the intertestamental period, they were south and east. Uh, they were a nomadic group south and east of, of uh, Palestine at the time, of, of Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And they would have had a kingdom of their own. And so there was a political merger there. And we'll find that because he dumps Eratos to marry Herodias, it's going to cause no end of trouble for Rome in a matter of a couple of decades as that political, um, that political environment dissolves and things get really ugly between these two groups. So Herod Antipas divorces Eratos explicitly to marry Herodias, who is his niece and the wife of his half-brother, Philip. It's a mess. Herod divorces Eratos, and, and I mentioned already, um, that would become a big problem later. 
And you can perhaps perceive all of the manifold theological, biblical, moral problems um, that would have moved John to speak against Herod. We would believe that John would uh, denounce Herod for these problems, for indeed Herod was a great prophet, and Herod was, I mean, John was a great prophet, excuse me, and Herod was the leader of the Jewish people. As John was considered a prophet, this speech would have been deeply troubling for Herod from several standpoints. Not the least of which is the loyalty of his people, right? He is leading the Jews. The Jews are already like a powder keg, constantly ready to blow up. He, he pacifies them by building them a temple. And he also pacifies his own pride by building it in his name and making it beautiful. He, he is constantly having to pacify them, constantly putting down little uh, sage fires of rebellion. And now he has this prophet. What people are saying is the first prophet since Malachi, okay? The prophet, the, wo- the voice crying in the wilderness, speaking against him. Big problem. If enough people came upset, the whole region could destabilize. They were already in this tension. That's the last thing that Herod wanted. So Herod has John thrown in prison. And Josephus tells us that it was the prison at Macharius, which was a fortress just east of the Dead Sea. So uh, if you ever look at a map, just east of the Dead Sea was a fortress. That's where Herod kept John, according to Josephus. Now, continuing in the text, the Bible says in Mark 6, verses 19 to 20, Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him, that would be uh, um, John, and would have killed him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and, and holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So Herodias is angry at John for this, right? She is a woman scorned. (laughs) So she is very angry at John. She nags her husband about killing this guy. But Herod is an Edomite. And if, again, if you've gone through the intertestamental period uh, stuff, you remember that the Edomites had been violently subjugated by the Jews. They had been forced into circumcision and made to learn the, the law and basically made to assimilate into Jewish culture. Which means Herod, though he was an Edomite, though he was not Jewish blood, he knew the law. He knew the law. There's no question about that. And he had conversations with John, it would seem, and he was willing to listen to him. And the Bible says that he regarded him. He observed him. He listened. He heard him. He did many things. He heard him gladly. Herod went down and had interesting conversations. Recall that when Herod hears of Jesus, he's curious, right? He wants to meet Jesus. He's interested in this prophet. He, he probably is a student of the Torah. He is a student of the Old Testament. He's read about these great prophets. And now they're appearing again, and he is very curious. And so he's curious about John and he's asking John questions and he's listening to him and he fears him because he knows he's a holy man and he's unwilling to kill him. The Matthew 14 account tells us that he also feared the people who regarded John as a prophet and that's what we've spoken of already. But we know it was just, it was more than just the fear of the people. Herod fearfully thinks that Jesus is the resurrected John, remember, So it's not just fear of the people. He's afraid of John. He's afraid of God's vengeance. He's afraid of killing the prophet of God. And if he's read the Old Testament, he better be afraid of killing the prophet of God. So Herod protects John. He allows John to be in prison to keep his message silent, but at the expense of uh, angering his illegitimate wife. He does not allow John to be killed. 
We continue. Verses 21 and 22. And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, ask of me whatsoever thou wilt and I will give it thee. Uh, all of, all of this is happening and it's the same and it's status quo until Herod's birthday. He throws a party for the leaders in his government. And for this party, Herodias' daughter, who we learn uh, is named Salome, comes in and dances for Herod, which would have been a very surprising thing for a woman of rank at that time because these dances were not dignified. These were not dignified dances. And for a woman of rank to do this, it was very undignified. Uh, normally, they would have just hired some dancing girl of low estate to do this sort of a thing. Either way, however, the king is quite pleased with this display. He, he is probably, um, as we might mirror um, the story of Esther and um, his party where he's seeking to display his wife Vashti, he's probably well drunk. He's probably um, wanting to show off. He's probably all of these things. And um, so he says, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. In, um, uh, in the next verse, we'll see he says, Even unto the half of my kingdom, which is a phrase, once again, that we see um, uh, Ahasuerus say unto Esther, right? Which kind of makes you think that Herod might think of himself as a bit more grand. Then he is. And that's what he specifies in verse 23. He says, And he swear unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto half my kingdom. This offer is to give her anything, uh, up to half of his kingdom. It was a grandiose claim, right? A grandiose claim that was simply meant to say, no holds barred, any reasonable request, I will grant you. I I would often wonder, I I do often wonder what would happen if one of these women actually said, I want half of your kingdom. Um, But really, the idea here is, I'm a man of power, I'm a man of, of unlimited resources and any reasonable request from, from you, I will grant it because you have pleased me. Um, and Herod didn't have all that much power anyway. So this may not have been as grandiose as it sounds. Um, it might be sort of like a young pastor of a small church saying, uh, I'll give you anything up to half my assets. Well, if you know me, um, that's not a very grandiose claim. Half my assets isn't a whole lot. And that's kind of what it is here with Herod. He's, he's um, speaking higher than he, he, than, than he has really anything, uh, a lot to give here. But it's all that is needed. We read in verses 24 and 25. And she, that Salome, went forth and said to, unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, that would be her mother, Herodias said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. So Salome is still young enough, obviously, uh, that she is impressionable, that she is under the uh, advice, guidance of her mother. Uh, she's not fully thinking on her own, perhaps, because this is not going to benefit her a whole lot in the future. But it does benefit her mother and pleases her mother well. So Herod had sworn, and here it is. This woman conjures up enough evil in her heart to stand with the likes of a Jezebel in the Old Testament, seizing an opportunity to back her husband into a corner and force him to kill the prophet of the living God. So Salome goes to Herod and makes this request. I want John the Baptist's head and I want it on a charger. A platter is what that would be. Verses 26 to 30. And the king was exceeding sorry. Yet for his oath's sake and for the sake 
uh, and for their sake which sat with him. In other words, so his pride would not be wounded and so that his power would not be questioned and his word would not be questioned. He would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. So ends the life of John the Baptist. He's killed quickly. His head is brought to Salome, who takes it to Herodias. The disciples of John hear that he is dead. They collect his body. They lay it in a, in a tomb. We don't know where. Nondescript. Now, we consider this material today as a means of gaining some perspective on the final events of John's life. From the time he was thrown into prison, he was a constant, he was in constant danger of death, right? He knew that this evil woman was nagging her husband constantly to have him killed. His only advocate was an unstable, proud, regional leader who found in him some level of interest and fascination, uh, if not respect, right? So that's, that's not a secure place, right? It's not like you have a king standing up for what is true and he's standing between you and the people that hate you. This is an unstable king who is doing wrong. He's a wicked man. He has already acquiesced to throw you in prison, even though he knows you don't belong there. And he, this man, is the only thing standing between you and this evil woman who wants you dead. No doubt at first, this was borne by great patience with John. After all, Messiah had appeared, right? Which means what? Which means the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is going to be established. And I wonder if that's a little bit of perhaps how John thought of it at first until his disciples started coming to him. I wonder if he was saying, it's okay, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm in prison, but Jesus is out, he's preaching the kingdom, his kingdom will be established. I know what the Old Testament says, that he's going to overthrow, uh, that he's going to overthrow uh, our adversaries, that he is going to deliver us from our sin. This is a good thing. I'm okay here. And if John thought at all like any other Jew, even his closest disciples, that, that's what he's expecting, right? He's expecting an announcement any day that the kingdom of heaven has come and, and that Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem and set up his, his physical kingdom. But that's not what happened, was it? Jesus is at odds with the leaders of the day. And this would not surprise John, for indeed he had called them a generation of vipers, right? But what about all of these reports? Jesus is plucking corn on the Sabbath. He's not regarding the Sabbath laws. He keeps saying he's bringing in a new system that's incompatible with the old. New wine, a new garment on, uh, that can't be sewn onto, or a new patch that can't be sewn onto an old garment. Certainly Jesus' preaching about loving one's enemy and blessing those that curse you does not sound like a kingdom preparing to be overthrown. And while John had every loyalty to the person and message of Jesus Christ and the work which which it was his privilege to announce, could we perhaps assume, and we are making an assumption here, but could we perhaps assume that John did not understand what was going on either? And in his lack of understanding under the threat of death, with the only thing standing between him and death being this, this man, Herod? Is it too far-fetched for us to believe that he may have experienced discouragement which led to fears and doubts? And this is what I'd like us to consider for the rest of our time together. Discouragement, 
fear, and doubt. And the first point that I would like us to consider in this regard is, number one, you are not beyond fear, discouragement, and doubt. You are not beyond fear, discouragement, and doubt. Now, we've spoken before in various contexts about the culture of church. By and large, we find church culture pulling Christians in one of two directions. In what we might call conservative circles of the faith, uh, God's people are tempted to present themselves as ready-made, sterilized Christianity, as if the circumstances of this life do not and cannot touch us, that no matter how bad our week was, we get dressed up on Sunday and we come and we smile and we say everything's good. We're, we're n- never vulnerable. We, we have no sin. We, we go home and we basically spend all day working or reading the Bible, right? This is kind of how we present ourselves. Now, it doesn't mean we should, but, but this is the temptation at least. May I, may I say it that way? We can also do this with emotions, right? We come into the body and present ourselves as untouched by pain, by fear, and by doubt. As if there's never anything wrong. Now, in what we might call the liberal circles of the faith, God's people are willing to present themselves as broken, as sinful, and as pained people, but then they are tempted to use this admission of a problem as an excuse for having the problem instead of dealing with the problem in a biblical way, whether that be sin or whether that be an emotional state. And so there's a temptation on both ends of this spectrum to be out of balance, to either present ourselves as completely sterilized and having no sin because we don't want to be judged, or presenting ourselves as broken, and that's okay. We don't need to be fixed. We're just broken. We're all broken people here, right? And that's an excuse for us to stay broken. But this passage presents us with a unique contrast that helps us formulate that healthy balance in between. The greatest of prophets, John the Baptist, was not beyond the emotional turmoil of doubt, of fear and discouragement leading to doubt, which he, uh, to, to doubt that which he did know to be true, right? His progenitor, the great prophet Elijah, felt these passions too, did he not? We dig a little deeper and we find that these two men's troubles are more similar than maybe even at first glance. Both men were great prophets of the Lord, proclaiming his will to a backslidden people. Both men were threatened by an evil woman who wanted him dead. Remember the story of Elijah? 1 Kings 19. He's on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal are there. And he says, whoever can call down fire from heaven first wins. And so the, the prophets of Baal try and they're cutting themselves. And Elijah is mocking them and saying, maybe your God is asleep. Maybe he's busy. Keep calling to him. And then when it's Elijah's turn, he says, douse that altar with as much water as you can find, which was interesting considering it was a drought, right? And they doused it until the entire, there's a trough around the altar that was filled with water. And then he says, the Lord our God is Lord and you will know it this day and fire falls from heaven. All the water is immediately lapped up and the the sacrifice is taken. And then the people surround those prophets of Baal and they kill them all, all 450. And it's after that great, incredible moment that Jezebel sends this message to Elijah, right? And she says, as God is living, which would be something that he would relate to, you will die. You will die and you will die soon. And so Elijah flees. He ends up 
sleeping in the wilderness on his way down to Horeb, Mount Horeb, which we also know as Mount Sinai. And he remains there for 40 days and nights. And at the end of those days, Elijah was in deep despair, convinced that he was the only man left in the world who served and loved God, right? He says, I am zealous for the Lord my God. When God says, what's wrong, Elijah? He says, I was zealous for the Lord my God, and I and I alone have stood for you. He's discouraged. It's led to, he's afraid, which has led to discouragement and doubts of God. Not that he didn't know God, and yet he doubted. And then God gently puts Elijah in his place, right? Elijah finds the voice of the Lord in this still small voice. And God says, he reminds Elijah that there were 7,000 in Israel who had not bowed the knee unto Baal. That God was still on the throne, even though this wicked woman wanted him dead. Pretty similar, huh? A wicked woman wants them both dead. After a great spiritual moment, John baptizes Jesus in the wilderness. Then Jesus is straightway led into, into the wilderness. And John gets thrown in prison. Elijah sees the 450 prophets of Baal destroyed. And then he's straightway led into the wilderness. But both these men had fears, which led to discouragement and doubt. We consider these truths so that I can remind you of this. If Elijah, the great prophet of God, following an event where he and Jehovah's name called down fire from heaven to justify the power of that true and living God, if this same Elijah in the months following could find himself an object of fear, discouragement, and doubt, if John, the greatest prophet to be born of women, who cried out just months before, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, then baptized our Lord and saw the visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove upon Jesus and hearing the audible voice of the Lord from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he could experience fear, discouragement, and doubt. Then church, we are not beyond these emotions. And furthermore, such emotions do not reveal in you weakness, nor do they inherently mean that there's something wrong with you. It means you are human. They're natural. They happen to the best of us. Now that being said, let us be clear. Fear, discouragement, and doubt are natural. They're to be expected in humans of fallen emotions But just because you will, at some and likely many points in your life, arrive at a state of fear, discouragement, and doubt, you as a believer have not been designed by God to remain there. To get there reveals you're human. To remain there reveals that you are not living in the power that the Spirit of God has for you. The Spirit of God which lives within you has prepared for you. And this brings us to our second consideration this evening. First, you are not beyond fear, discouragement, and doubt. But second, you need to know you are not designed by God to be bound by fear, discouragement, and doubt. God has not designed you to live bound to the very human emotion we discuss, the very human emotions we discuss today. It's not a sign of weakness to feel these things, but to live under them is to deny the power of the living Christ and to strip from yourselves the joy which God has designed you to live in. If I may put it this way, such emotions are natural to you as a human, but unnatural to you as a child of God. 
They're natural to you as a human, but unnatural to you as a child of God. Even though you will go through times of fear and discouragement and doubt, these holy human emotions do not need and indeed should not direct your life, control your life, bind you to them. What is designed for the Christian life? What are you designed for? May I summarize it with Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19? Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. To live a life in the riches of God's glory, strengthened with might by the Spirit of God, Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith, rooted and grounded in love, so that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a mouthful, isn't it? And this is what has been secured for you in Christ. This is what is stolen from you by fear, discouragement, and doubt. And on the day John sent his disciples to Jesus, doubting Jesus' identity and wondering at his message, Jesus replied with these words. Remember, Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor, uh, to the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he, whosoever is not offended, stumbled, tripped up in me. Jesus says, go remind John who he serves. So that he can get out of this place of fear, discouragement, and doubt. Blessed is he. Whosoever shall not be offended in me, whosoever will not reject what you know of me, whosoever will not be, will not stumble at what the Bible says I have secured, at who the Bible says I am. Blessed is the man who, knowing the evidences of the truths of God and his word, do not stumble at Christ's claims. Blessed is the man who does not allow the things his senses tell him to interfere with the things that God's word tells him. There are three ways that emotions can attack us as human beings. Spiritual, emotional, and physical. The scriptures seem to indicate that we are what we call tripartite beings. That we exist in three interrelated parts. We, uh, just, as Jesus, just as God is a trinity, right? One God made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We seem to be a trinity as well, made up of the body, the soul, and the spirit. The body is that physical aspect of our being. It's the vessel. The soul is our personality, our character, our will, that part of us, our emotions, that part of us that makes us us, right? That is our soul. And then the spirit is the element of our being which makes us God-aware and relates us to the spirit realm. It's, it's the part that has the relationship with God. And so we have our spirit, our body, and our soul. Body, soul, and spirit. Now, as I divide our fears, discouragements, and doubts into these three areas, I do not intend to express them as mutually exclusive. In other words, when you're dealing with physical problems, there can definitely be emotional and spiritual effects, right? 
When you're dealing with emotional problems, they can manifest themselves in physical and spiritual ways. When you're dealing with spiritual problems, they will often manifest themselves in some emotional or physical way. But there is a center for each problem, and that center is not always the same. And when I say that we can have spiritual fear, discouragement, and doubt, I'm speaking about problems that arise in the hearts of God's people in direct relation to their spiritual relationship with God. Concerns over whether or not you are, are a Christian. Assurance of salvation. Uh, many Christians struggle with that. Frustration over a sin which seems to overcome you, and you've yielded to it again and again and again. And so you're, you're facing spiritual frustration over this sin that you feel like you can't conquer. Frustration over lack of discipline in your spiritual life. Discouragement over a perceived lack of spiritual fruit in your life. These are all ways that, that we, that the problem can be rooted in the spiritual. And oftentimes it will roll over into the emotional and it can even roll over into the physical, but it's rooted in a spiritual concern, a spiritual problem, a spiritual worry, a spiritual fear. Emotional fear and discouragement or doubt arises in the hearts of God's people with direct relationship to their emotional relationships with others, right? Uh, relationship concerns, husband and wife relationship, parent-child relationship, friends, a boss, personal insecurities, how I look, your talents and abilities, how others perceive you, pain and anger related to mistreatment, being abused, um, being um, uh, current abuse, uh, previous abuse, traumatic experiences, a home invader, a robber, uh, military men who have gone over and seen things that no man should ever have to see. Emotional problems that bring about fear, discouragement, and doubt. And then, of course, there's physical fear, discouragement, and doubt arising in the hearts of God's people from their material circumstances or their physical elements. We talked about how I look. Well, you can have an emotional element of how I look in the eyes of others, and then there can be the physical element of how I look in the eyes of me, right? How I'm, I'm not content with me. I'm not content with how God has made me. Financial problems, job problems, health problems, physical, material circumstances, of course, they will affect emotions. They will affect the spirit. And in each case... Fortunately, we can approach the issue the same way. We understand that to live in a state of fear, discouragement, or doubt is not what God has designed for us. We go to the Word of God to understand what God has taught us about Himself and who we are in Him. We endeavor to align ourselves with God, heart, soul, and might. But in order to do that, we do need to know what God's Word says. And I'm going to take you to one of my favorite psalms this evening for this. Psalm 77. Psalm 77 is the psalm of Asaph. And in this psalm, Asaph writes this. To the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will He be favorable no more? Is His mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger 
shut up his tender mercies? Selah. A Selah in the Psalms was a pause. It was a moment that you were supposed to stop and reflect upon the words being given. We've seen two of them thus far. First, considering the overwhelming state of the man. Second, considering these questions that he's asking, where he says, has God forsaken me? Here's a man suffering some sort of turmoil, right? It's, it's perhaps emotional, it's perhaps spiritual, there's turmoil, there's doubt. He wonders if God sees him. He speaks of being so troubled he can't speak. He can't even speak. He's so troubled he, can't, he lays awake at night. He's trying to solve it. He's communing with his own heart. How many times did David say that, right? I communed with my own heart upon my bed and I was still. He says, so I've communed with my own heart. I'm, I'm trying here. I'm trying to solve it. I'm trying to work it out. I can't speak. I can't sleep. His emotional and spiritual problems are carrying over into the physical. And now the doubt Then comes the doubt. With Has the fear God forgotten me? Has God left me behind? Is he no longer gracious? Has he forgotten his character? Hath he in anger shut up his mercy? The man's spirit was overwhelmed and he doubts God. He doubts God's goodness. Will the Lord cast off forever? He doubts God's character. Is his mercy cling gone forever? But see, it's not because he doesn't know who God is. It's just that in the, in, in the state of emotional, spiritual, and physical despair, discouragement, fear, and doubt, he has lost sight of something. Well, thankfully, the psalm doesn't end in verse 9. Verses 10 through 20, it begins saying this. And I said, this is my infirmity. He recognized that this is his problem. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. The psalmist is in deep despair. He's racked by fear, discouragement, and doubt. And then he comes to himself and he says, yes, I have this problem. This is my problem. It is a problem. I'm not pretending like it's not. I'm not being this sterilized Israelite that says I don't have a problem that's living in denial. But I'm not going to sit here and wallow in self-pity either. I'm not going to sit here and wallow in my brokenness and say that there's nothing that can be done for me because I can remember something. I can remember God from years gone by. I can remember God's faithfulness. I can remember his works. I can remember his wonders of old. I will meditate on them. I will talk of them. I will take my eyes off of my circumstances and put them upon a God who has never failed, who cannot fail. I will take my, my eyes off of the circumstances that are plaguing me with fear and with discouragement and doubt, and I will put my eyes upon the God who is faithful and true. I will be reminded that my times are in His hand. I will be reminded that He has been doing this a really long time. He continues, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God is our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. The water saw thee, O God. The water saw thee. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven. The lightnings lighted the world. The earth trembled and shook. Thy way is in the sea. Thy path in the great waters. And thy footsteps are not known. Thou leddest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God has led his people like a flock from time gone by God has led 
his people. Is God, is your problem now too big for God? Is your health problem too big for God? Is your financial problem too big for God? Is your emotional problem too big for God? Is your relationship problem too big for God? Is the way you look bigger than God? Is your spiritual problem bigger than God? His way is in the sea. The lightning flashes. The thunder shakes at His command. I don't know what fears you're encountering today. I don't know what discouragement you might be under. I don't know what doubts have crept into your mind about God. But I know this. You serve a mighty God. And in these times, as the psalmist leads us into worship, he reminds us of our privilege of taking our eyes off of our circumstances and putting them on our God. Taking our eyes off of the physical and putting it on the one who transcends the physical, who is bigger than that. He's bigger than that. He's bigger than your problems. And he knows you. And he loves you because he led his people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He led them like a shepherd. And we could go to Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we could go to Psalm 37. I have been young and now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. I don't know what fears you face. Maybe they're physical. And I, I can't necessarily relate to everyone's physical fears in this room, but you know what I can do? I can take you to one who had other physical fears of his own. I can take you to a man named Paul, who in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10, uh, 12, 7 to 10, wrote this, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And what does he say then? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory. In my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If this is where God wants me, this is the best place for me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because when I am weak, then God can be strong in me. Paul yielded his physical problem to the power of the Almighty God, and as he did so, his doubts, his fears, his discouragement, this desire that he had that it would depart from him, gave way to rejoicing, to glory in his weakness, knowing that in his weakness, God's strength could shine forth. I don't know, perhaps, what material lack you have today. Maybe you're in a financial, difficult financial place. You're, you're under material lack. I, I, I can't necessarily relate to all of those problems, but I do know what God taught Paul again about trust in this regard. Philippians chapter 4, Paul said in verses 11 to 13, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. 
You see all the sports people put, those, put, put that on, you know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. It's on shoes, it's on the, the football pads, well, you know, whatever, it's fine. But what is Paul saying here? He's not saying, I can win trophies. He's saying, oh, except for eternal. He's saying, I can be in the midst of absolute want, lack, not having what I need, and I can still serve Christ. In the midst of suffering's greatest needs, he can be content, free from worry, free from fear, free from doubt, because of the God he serves. I don't know what kind of emotional trials you have been going through, but I know that God is a God of all comfort, whose word can teach you how to submit your fears and your discouragements and your doubts to him and find joy and peace. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted. He is the God of all comfort who can and will comfort you in your tribulations and then will bless you with the privilege of comforting others in the same way. And blessed is he who is not offended in Christ. Blessed is he who, knowing what the word of God has to tell us about fear, discouragement, and doubt, is able to take his mind into captivity and place his mind not on things of this earth, but on things above, and take that fear and that discouragement and doubt and submit it to the realities of the character of the living God. I don't know what kind of spiritual wrestling you're contending with today. But I know what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who shall also make intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You're dealing with spiritual confusion and spiritual dis discouragement and fear and doubt? <coughs> who can separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul writes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a nice trash can to throw fear, discouragement, and doubt, isn't it? I wish we could spend time walking one by one through every fear, every concern, and show how the power of God through the Spirit of God, by obedience to the Word of God, can take your fear, discouragement, and doubt and turn it into joy. And indeed... There are some scars that cannot fully heal in the human condition, aren't there? Until the day that we are perfected in the glory of our heavenly home. But if this message can do anything for you this evening, let it be to remind you of this general and essential truth. 
that though you and I operate under the human condition and so are susceptible to fear and discouragement and doubt, every moment spent in such a state is a moment where God's character, will, and word desires to direct you to a higher plane, to a place of joy even in the midst of sorrow to a place of peace, even in the midst of confusion, to a place of love, even when surrounded by hate. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If God be for us, who can be against us? John was a man of like passion, such as we. He faced doubts. He could be discouraged. He knew what it was to fear. And Jesus' message to John through his disciples was simply this. Go back to John and tell him what you've seen. Tell him that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, that the dead are raised to life, that the poorest among them are hearing the gospel of Christ. Tell them that the riches of blessings are upon those who, knowing who God claims to be and what God has claimed to do and what he has promised to us in him, believes it and does not get offended by it, does not stumble at the character and the promises of God. This message was one of the most difficult I have written in some time. It just wouldn't come together for me. I wrestled and I wrestled and I wrestled with it. It's like wrestling an octopus. I long to express the wealth of information that the Word of God has to say on different circumstances which may be holding you in fear and in discouragement and in doubt. But alas, I have, I have no means by which to tell them all to you this evening. But... My question as we close will be this. Is there something in your life which is causing you to be weighed down, bound by fear, discouragement, and doubt? Is there a weight that is dragging you spiritually, emotionally, or physically? Do you believe that God has made through himself provision for you to live unbound by that fear, discouragement, and doubt? Do you know what God's word has to say about it? If not, would I encourage you, could I encourage you to make that your goal? What does God's word have to say about this particular struggle I'm having? Relationship, finances, job, salvation, whatever it is. What does the Bible say? Now, if you do know what the Bible says, the the next natural question is, do you believe it or have you become offended in, in him? Have you stumbled at God's promises. It's not wrong for you to experience fear, discouragement, and doubt. But God never, ever, ever meant for you to remain there. Would you seek God's face? Would you remember the character of the God you serve? Would you remember that God has made you in Christ? Would you take the steps necessary to lay your fears, discouragement, and doubt at the feet of the one who has secured for you the victory who, and assume rather a posture of yielded and obedient faith? Trusting that if you will do so, the blessing which Christ speaks of can be yours. Let's close in prayer. Father, make us what you would have us to be. Make us what we ought to be. That we would do what we ought to do and be what we ought to be for you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.